Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. Hey, guys, welcome back to Boston Confidential. Just want to do some housekeeping stuff as we usually do at the opening of each show. We got a big response on the Sandra Crispo case of last week. And again, I knew I would because every time I open my email, there's a request to cover the Sandra Crispo case and, you know, several others. I've mentioned them before, and I think we've covered all the big ones. So feel free to send in some new show requests, things for us to cover. I've got some plans going forward as well. And I'll let you know about that as we go. But if you need to get a hold of me, guys, email's the best way. And I know a lot of you guys reach out on Facebook, and I'll try to get back as quick as I can on that platform. But email is the best and quickest way. The amount of emails has skyrocketed, so it's taking a little bit of time to get back. But I think I'm keeping up for the most part. But my email is barry at bostonconfidential.net. That's definitely the best way to get a hold of me. I almost forgot I should have led with this. I don't know where my showmanship is, but Boston Confidential was featured in an article in the Boston Globe by a reporter by the name of Dana Gerber. The name of the article is Eight Boston-Centric Podcasts for Foodies, True Crime Fans, and More. It's a short little article, but what the hell, we'll celebrate, right? So I was pretty excited. They gave the show a great review, and I can't ask for anything more. So thank you to Dana Gerber at the Boston Globe. And you guys check out the article. I was going to put it in the show notes, but that's not the place to promote my show. It's for the case information. So it's up on our Facebook page if you guys want to review it. So I was pretty psyched, and I think things are going very well. And along those same lines, guys, I'm pleased to say We've just surpassed 200,000 downloads in under two years. And in the podcasting industry for a rookie podcaster, that's absolutely unheard of. And I owe all those stats to you guys. So thank you to the audience of Boston Confidential. But now I have a confession to make to you guys. And I'm sorry to say I had given you guys an assignment at the end of, I don't know, was it the Judy Chartier episode or what? But there's a series on Hulu with Michelle Carter. I'm sorry, I don't have the name in front of me right now. And I suggested that we watch it together kind of as an assignment like we did with Trial 4. I don't think it's going to have the same type of fireworks. But I have been slacking. I started to watch the first episode and I fell asleep and then I neglected it. I have no excuse. I know my grade will be taken down a few notches because of my laziness, but let's start again, okay? <laughs> Go back, and this is just your instructor covering his ass. 
go back and watch the Michelle Carter special on Hulu, and we'll discuss it a little bit on the show. So I let you down on that one. Sorry, guys. I have to start watching TV a little earlier at night. I'm getting old, you know? What am I supposed to do? I fall asleep. But in all honesty, I don't think it was just falling asleep. I just had too much of that case. What she did to Conrad Roy just puts a pit in my stomach, and I think I just didn't want to do it anymore. There's actually a good documentary on it. I think it's on Netflix called I Love You Now Die, which depicts the case as it unfolded, and there was some good detective work in that. So I do suggest that. I know it's a Netflix series, and we tear apart Netflix series here at Boston Confidential, but I did watch it. And it does seem to jibe with the facts as I remember them. So go ahead and enjoy that one without too much worry. And I think when I gave you this assignment, I said her conviction had been overturned. I don't think that's the case. The Massachusetts Supreme Court refused to reduce her sentence or throw it out altogether. And she was convicted of involuntary manslaughter. And then she filed a request that the United States Supreme Court review her case, and they refused to do so. Ten days later, she completed her sentence. It was just a few years at the Bristol County House of Correction, and she's been out ever since. She seems to be back home. I saw her on the news, and the segment had to do with this new Hulu special, She's 25 now. I don't know if she ever got the help she so desperately, desperately needed. But imagine if you were a young man in the Plainville area or anywhere, really, who brings Michelle Carter home for you to meet as the new girlfriend. Imagine that. What do you say to that, guys? Holy cow, right? All right, guys. So I think with this episode, we're going to embark on a three-episode arc on the FBI. We're going to start with the FBI in Boston with H. Paul Rico up through John Conley, John Morris, and all that. And then we'll go into the national FBI. So I think this will probably take about three episodes. I was thinking originally two, but there's just so much information to cover here. And here in the Boston area, we're pretty familiar with it. We're kind of numb to the FBI corruption in the Whitey Bulger case, but it's really not confined to the Whitey Bulger case either. And something I've always said to my wife, if you tell the story, the FBI story in Boston, like we talk about it here, to somebody in Iowa and Nebraska, they wouldn't be able to believe that the FBI could be so corrupt. But were they? It played out right in front of your eyes. And we kind of all look the other way on it, right? And you think, geez, they must have cleaned it up. Well, they haven't, right? Mark Rossetti was a capo at the Boston La Cosa Nostra. And he had the same type of deal that James Whitey Bulger had with him. And Bulger was out killing people. And the allegation here about Mark Rossetti, at least as far as 2011, 2012, he was doing the same thing. And it's kind of a question mark on the homicides, right? But he was a home invader. He was a heroin trafficker. And it came out as he was being prosecuted in Massachusetts state courts 
that he was a informant for the FBI. It actually came out in a state police wiretap where he's talking to his FBI handler. So what happened there is the state police, mass state police had directly asked, is Mark Rossetti an FBI informant to the FBI? And they say, no, he isn't. So the whole level of corruption, the whole continuing saga just marches on. They never learn a lesson. And I go back to the case of John Morris, who was John Conley's boss during this mayhem in Boston where Whitey Bulger and Stevie Flemmy were running amok, killing at least two women, strangling them to death. And John Conley, the FBI agent who the Winter Hill gang had in their pocket, knew it. And John Morris was the agent in charge, the special agent in charge of the office. And Whitey Bulger corrupted him for a case of wine and two plane tickets, one for him and one for his mistress. And then, after this all goes to court, John Morris testifies, never loses a day's pay at the FBI. And get this about John Morris. You know, they moved him from the Boston office of the FBI to the FBI Academy. And he was teaching, I don't know if he still is, at the FBI Academy. You've got to be kidding me. You have a guy who was bought for a case of wine teaching new recruits. Man, does it sound like they learned their lesson? They're just never held to account. They're never held to account. And now it appears in more recent times, the FBI is acting as a Praetorian guard for one political party. And even if you're a member of that political party, that should give you nightmares because it gives me nightmares because they're acting as political investigators and they could put you in the can for the rest of your life. And this case I'm going to tell you about today with Joe Salvati is going to blow you away if you don't know about it. And that's not just me saying that. There was a $102 million settlement for Joe Salvati and the rest of the crew that they sent to prison for decades, knowing they were innocent. They knew they were innocent. FBI agents knew it. And they let people rot and die in prison. Innocent men. The FBI had the exculpatory evidence and it was on J. Edgar Hoover's desk in the morning. This story of the Edward Deegan murder, they called him Eddie Deegan. He was a criminal hanger-on around the North End in Chelsea, Massachusetts in the 60s, 50s and 60s. But this may be one of the most corrupt actions by any government agency ever. They let people they knew to be innocent rot in prison. Rot in prison. All right, guys, so I'm going to give you the story of the Eddie Deegan murder, and I'll go through the characters with you. There's a lot of names, a lot of moving parts. So as I was talking earlier, and I said if somebody brought this in as a Hollywood script, it would be laughed out of the office because it's just so implausible. But it's true. It's all true. And this is the level of corruption that the FBI was involved in. And it's not the last time. It just isn't. You know, we're kind of immune to 
FBI corruption in Boston, but do me a favor. Try to listen to this with virgin ears, right? Like it's the first time you've heard it because it's absolutely amazing. All right, grab your hat, guys. We got to jump back into the Wayback Machine. Guys, this homicide happened March 12th, 1965, but it can really be traced back to January 65. This is when Joe Barbosa, who was a hitman who came out of New Bedford, Massachusetts. He was a hitman for Raymond Patriarca, the head of the New England mob. They called Raymond Patriarca the man. And he was the godfather of the New England mob and was headquartered out of Rhode Island, I believe on Atwell's Ave in Providence. But he controlled everything in Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Connecticut. Think of a John Gotti type character with more territory to cover. And I think at that time they were making a lot more money than the mob of the 80s and 90s. But Joe Barbosa wasn't a made member of La Casa Nostra because he was Portuguese. And to be a made member of La Casa Nostra, you have to be a full-blooded Italian with the mob being able to trace your roots to Italy. So you have to be a full-blooded Italian. He wasn't. But he was a big guy. He was a vicious guy. He was a killer. He was a boxer. So he was an all-around tough guy. His name was Joe the Animal Barbosa, and he earned that name. And he would be in Boston quite frequently. And he thought he was, you know, representing Raymond Patriarca, but he was untouchable because he was with that crew. So the story goes, guys, the best I can decipher it, because you've got two competing actions here, right? The FBI and Joe Barbosa, both of which are notorious liars. But let me give you the story, the best that I've come up with. So it's January 1965, and Joe Barbosa is approached by a local member of La Casa Nostra, and his name was Peter Lamoni, and he worked in the North End. And he told Barbosa, Barbosa, again, known as a hitman, Barbosa is approached by Peter Lamoni and states that Eddie Deegan had recently broke into one of the mob's places, a safe, and cracked the safe and stole $82,000. And in 1965, $82,000 would be equivalent in today's money to about $740,000. And this was Eddie Deegan's M.O. He was involved in organized crime, but he was an Italian. And they call him scores. He'd do scores, whatever they were. He'd rob whoever it was. And this was a giant score. Imagine $740,000, right? So naturally, the mob is pissed. They narrow it down to Eddie Deegan as being the culprit. Why Eddie Deegan doesn't take the $740,000? and fly down to Miami and live out the rest of his days is beyond me. But these guys aren't always the sharpest knife in the drawer. So Lamoni puts out a contract on Eddie Deegan for $7,500. Barbosa accepts. And at that point, they go into trying to set him up. And Barbosa knows members of Eddie Deegan's crew. And... They start working it. They try to start to set him up. 
that was in January, come March, they're ready to do this hit. Now, although Teddy Deegan was on the periphery of organized crime, he did know a lot of the players, and he was known as a high-quality second-story man, a burglar, if you will, right? And he got a lot of work, and if you stumble into 740000 how don't you get the hell out of there? That's beyond me. So March 12th, 1965 is when this hit goes down. About 11 p.m., Eddie Deegan is found lying on his back in an alleyway in Chelsea, Massachusetts, which is a small city just north of Boston. It was said at the time and many times after that Chelsea was an entirely corrupt organization. So the mob kind of ran Chelsea almost like Al Capone was in Chicago, but his real headquarters was in Cicero because the mob owned that whole town, right? So Mr. Deegan is found on his back with a screwdriver in his hand, left hand, and it was said that three different weapons were used on Mr. Deegan. There were two forty-fives and one thirty-eight caliber weapon. And right after that happened, the FBI had a memo on J. Edgar Hoover's desk that stated Joe Barbosa, Ronnie the Pig Cassaro, Wilfred Roy French, and Vinny the Bear Flemmy committed this homicide. They knew. They knew right then who did it. This information, that document I'm speaking of, didn't come to light for decades upon decades later, but they knew. They knew exactly who did it. Now, naturally, you're going to ask yourself, did they share that information with the Chelsea police, the Massachusetts State Police? No, they did not. It appears that the FBI actually used this homicide, believe it or not, to recruit Joe Bob Bosa as a federal informant. Because in 1966, Bob Bosa did become a registered informant with the FBI. And I believe Vinnie Flemmy was already actually providing information to the FBI. He was also a registered informant. But I think he turned over before Barbosa, and if the name Flemmy rings a bell in Boston organized crime, Vinny the Bear Flemmy is the brother of Stephen the Rifleman Flemmy. Hell of a family there, right? So there are a few different theories as to why Barbosa turned federal informant. One of them is he wanted to be the first non-Italian made member of La Casa Nostra. That was never going to happen because they had a national leadership, and that was one of the requirements for membership, full-blooded Italian. And he was half Portuguese, half Italian, I believe. So he wasn't eligible for membership in La Costa Nostra, and that was never going to change. It just wouldn't. But he was earning a ton of money on his own. He was an enforcer for Patriarca. So I don't know if that's why he did it. The FBI did have this information on this homicide, and it would have put him in the electric chair. Yes, Massachusetts, earlier in the 60s, had the electric chair. But I think the FBI went to him and said, listen, we have you, we have Vinnie Flemmy, and you're going to go to the electric chair. And he flips, and he testifies in court against several men. And conveniently, he leaves out his best friend, Vinnie the Bear. Flemmy. So, man, it's 
just a crazy situation what happens next. He starts naming people that he has grudges against. And I'm going to tell you all their names and some of their information as well. But let's get to that. So in the 1960s, guys, there was no prohibition for the FBI to use murderers as informants. So you would think, geez, that's got to be illegal. It's definitely unethical. I don't think it was illegal back then. They knew he had committed this murder and other murders. They should have been targeting Bob Bosa, not kissing his cheek. So I believe this is where the corruption really gets underway. It began with recruiting this murderer, right? But in the deal they have with H. Paul Rico, he is the FBI agent in control of this situation. And there's a couple more names that you're going to be familiar with. And it appears that John Conley was learning at the knee of H. Paul Rico, as was John Morris. H. Paul Rico may be the most corrupt law enforcement person in American history. And that's saying something, but... As a local journalist in Boston, Howie Carr says he was more crooked than a snake in a hurry. So the FBI and Barbosa come up with this fantastical story about who committed this homicide, and it was all bullshit, or at least most of it was bullshit. That's kind of the problem with Barbosa. He sprinkles in the truth and falsehoods to the point where you don't know which end is up. But at trial, he names the following individuals as murdering Eddie Deegan. And those individuals are Louis Greco, Henry Tamiello, Ron Cassesio, and Peter Lamoni. Those people were under a death sentence in this case. Joe Salvati was also indicted, and Roy French also indicted. They were facing life sentences. Ronnie the Pig. Cassio and Roy French were present at the homicide, and Joe Barbosa was there as well. But he only names Ronnie the Pig and Roy French. Those are the only other guys that were there besides Barbosa. But he puts all those other guys in there because he had grudges against them, and the FBI knew it. And they helped him concoct the story that he was going to tell on the stand. I just can't imagine it. Conveniently, Barbosa leaves out his best friend, Vinny Flemmy. So, man, these guys go off to the joint. And like I say, the trial was just a sham because the FBI was encouraging perjury, right? Like, what else is this? This is a show trial, basically. So, Louis Greco, Henry Tamiello, Ronnie the Pig, and Peter Lamoni were actually sentenced to go to the electric chair. Joe Salvati and Roy French were given life sentences. So Salvati, Lamoni, uh, Lamoni was involved, I guess, but Tamiello and Greco, they had really nothing to do with it. You know, they had various levels of being involved in crime and stuff like that. They were very fringe players, some of these guys, and they were innocent. They were 100% innocent. And the case of Joe Salvati would end up breaking this case wide open. Joe Salvati tells the story. He had borrowed $400 from a local loan shark whom he was friendly with from the neighborhood. And 
he borrows this $400. And actually, it's kind of strange to think about it. That $400 in today's money is worth about $3,600. So he borrows that money from a loan shock. And he was friends with this guy. So he knew there wouldn't be any rough stuff. And he was paying the bill. So at that time, Barbosa takes over that loan shocking operation and demands payment immediately from everybody that owed money. And Salvati couldn't come up with the dough. And that's why Barbosa puts him in this jackpot. Imagine that, over 3,600 bucks. And the FBI knew the majority of these guys were totally innocent. And you'd have agents trying to go around H. Paul Rico to say Salvati's innocent. And Lamoni wasn't there. Jeez, it's just crazy. They knew. How do they go to bed at night? In prison in Massachusetts in those days, much tougher than it is now. I mean, you had nothing, and those buildings were dank, dangerous, and dim, man. It, it was a tough place to do time. It isn't anymore, but back then, it was hard time, all of it. So if the name Joe Salvati sounds familiar to Boston area listeners, that's because Dan Ray actually broke this case wide open in the late 90s. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about Joe Salvati. And in the next episode, we'll get into the other people who were identified as murdering Eddie Deegan by Joe Barbosa. But Salvati was a straight guy, married guy, working guy. Yeah, he's Italian. I don't know. Was he involved in some level? He had borrowed that money. But he was innocent in this case. He was just a working stiff. But Dan Ray of WBZ did yeoman's work on behalf of Joe Salvati. And it is just incredible. So Salvati, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag here, but he's sentenced to life in May 68. And he wasn't released from prison. He wasn't exonerated until 1997, guys. So that's 30 years, the prime 30 years of your life, your wife going on without you, right? And your life is just gone. It's over. You have no earning capacity. And it's just crazy what they did to these guys. In the 30 years that these guys did, Joe Salvati, that was horrible what happened to him. But you want to know what happened to Louis Greco and Henry Tamiello? They died in the joint, man. They died in the joint, totally innocent, nothing to do with the case. At least Salvati had borrowed some money. There was some limited connection, you know. I think Tamiello and Greco were just picked out of thin air. This guy, Barbosa, had beefs against a lot of people, and he just threw them in there. And those guys were innocent men, and they died in the joint. And don't forget... Greco and Tamiello were originally sentenced to death. So the FBI was going to let them go to the death chamber, guys. Can you imagine this? I can't believe I'm saying it. They were going to let them be sentenced to death knowing they were innocent, right? But just after the trial had finished, Massachusetts discontinued the use of the death penalty. But the FBI was going to put those guys in the electric chair or the gas chamber. I don't know what we were using at the time. Imagine that. How about them apples? 
all to protect their new informants, Vincent Fleming and Joe Barbosa. So they sacrificed those guys to the point of putting them in the death chamber or likely going to the death chamber. They were likely to be executed. And the FBI agents that were involved in this, and this would come out later through the Justice Department hearings on this case, was H. Paul Rico, king of corruption, Dennis Condon, who I believe went on in Massachusetts to be the director of public safety at the state level, John Morris, who would later have some whitey bulge of fame, and John Conley, who runs neck and neck with H. Paul Rico for most corrupt FBI agent in history. All of those people I just mentioned knew that those men were innocent, and they let Louis Greco and Henry Tamiello die in the joint. H. Paul Rico would eventually go to prison over this, and it was years too late. He was very elderly. I don't know if it was at the trial or the congressional hearing, but somebody asked him a question. Do you have any remorse, basically? I'm going to put this in the show notes. The person asked, do you have any remorse on this? And H. Paul Rico is standing there, and he says, what do you want from me, tears? The whole room was stunned. You'll be stunned. I'm going to find it. I'm going to put that in the show notes, and you have to watch it. What do you want, tears? This seems like a movie, but it isn't. These guys are just rancid, and I'm sorry. Those guys weren't the only people in the Boston office. They were good people. There was probably about, I don't know, I hear 45 to 50 agents in Boston, and they cover the majority of the New England area. So there had to be good people there, and they knew, but they're not involved in the case, and you're going to go up against H. Paul Rico. It's rancid is what it is. And if you think they wouldn't do that to you, you're dead wrong. They did put Louis Greco and Henry Tamiello basically in the death chamber. They were waiting for them to be executed. And believe me, they would have rathered those two be executed because nobody would ever know the truth. But they weren't very frightened, right? They moved about this city with impunity. The FBI were as much gangsters in Boston as those people they were trying to arrest in the North End and in Federal Hill in Providence. All right, guys, I know that's a lot to digest, and it's a lot to believe, but it's all true. It's insane. But I'm going to leave you there. In the next episode, we're going to go through the rest of this corruption, massive corruption, and I'll tell you what happened to the rest of the guys that were innocent in this case. But two men, two innocent men, were left to die in prison. And that's a fact. And I, I don't know how the FBI continues. I don't know how those guys ever slept at night. They were wholly unaccountable and wholly corrupt. And it would continue all the way up into the 80s. And some say the 21st century, where we are today. And I'm going to give you all that information. And you're going to have to make your own determination about the FBI. Recently, there's been several calls to disband the FBI, rebrand the FBI. And if you're following any of the political narratives in the country, they've basically now become a Praetorian God for one political party. And even if you're a member of that political party, that should give you some pause, right? Because they're targeting people with wiretaps and all this other stuff 
based on faulty information. There's allegations the FBI went to the FISA court with information they knew to be false to provide warrants against one political candidate who later became president. I know that man can be divisive, right? But that is far beyond the bounds of law enforcement. It is tyranny what happened there. And again, that renewed calls for disbanding this law enforcement agency. And I'm typically not part of that. One of the things that really struck me in these past few years was the call to disband the police. I believe that's the most infantile and stupid public policy proposal and implementation because they did try to do this, right? They've cut a billion dollars out of New York City from the policing budget, and the city is in total chaos. And they wanted to defund the police in some type of effort to help a certain segment of society. That certain segment of society is suffering because of this foolish public policy proposal. So I'm usually totally against the calls for disbanding law enforcement or defund the police. But you might be able to convince me about something with the FBI here. They are that corrupt over and over again. And quite frankly, they don't seem to fear Congress. They don't seem to fear the president, the courts. They seem totally unaccountable in all this. And we'll get into that in the next episodes. But make your own determination as to what should happen to the FBI. I think that's all I have for you right now, guys. In the meantime, if you need to get a hold of me, my email and email's the best way to get a hold of me is barry at bostonconfidential.net. All right, guys, I'll see you on the flip side. <laughs>